This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. Anne here with a quick request for you before we start the show. Gabe, my producer, and I are always trying to come up with ways to improve Safe Space Radio. And one thing that would really help us do that is to hear from you about what's working for you about the show and what you'd like us to try. If you could take a minute to answer a short five-question survey after you've heard this show on Refugee Women in Maine, we would be so grateful. You can find it by visiting safespaceradio.com and clicking on the button that says Survey. It won't take long, and it'll help us keep pushing the show in new and exciting directions. Thank you in advance for your response, and thanks for listening. This is WMPG. My name is Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is part of our ongoing series about refugee women in Maine. And we wanted to talk to a high school senior because so much of the experience of refugees and immigrants here is the experience of coming as a young person and trying to fit into school while you're learning a language and a whole new culture. So I'm very lucky to be at the home of Iman, who is 18 years old, a high school senior in Gorham, Maine. She arrived here in March of 2015 with her mom, her older sister, and her younger brother. She and her family lived in Egypt as refugees for five years after fleeing Sudan in 2010, where her mother had been detained for her work with humanitarian agencies in Darfur. I interviewed Iman's mother, Tazir, last week, and if you want to hear that interview, you can go to our website. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Iman. Hi. So I got to hear a little bit about your story from your mother, but I'm really interested in hearing about it from your perspective. So how old were you when you had to leave your home in Sudan? Um, I was 13. I was 13 years old. And did you have the sense like that you weren't going to get a chance to say goodbye to your best friends or your I was actually grateful um that I got to say bye to my uh dad and my two older brothers but I did not say bye to my friends at all it's it, we just left Are you in touch with them now like have you had a chance to reach out I back to I do talk them? to them now uh-huh. Yeah I I think I stopped talking to them for a good year after because I was so lost and I was not in a good place at all and you know it was I was 13 so it was the beginning of my teenage and I was feeling terrible basically and um, so I just kind of stopped talking to people my first year in Egypt I was depressed so I, I stopped contacting them but then afterwards I was like no you know those people are my people and we got back in touch. So I understand that when you got to Egypt that you actually went to a place that you had been before, that yeah. there's sort of easy travel back and forth between Egypt and Sudan, or at least yeah. there was at that time, um, and that you were able to go to an American, a private American school there. Mm-hmm. What did you tell people about why you had had to leave Sudan? I said that it's because I wanted a better living, which is, now that I look back, it is true, but when I did say it, it wasn't because I didn't understand what was going on. So, but that that was my reason. That's that's my reason right now when I get asked because I wanted a better living. Uh-huh. But it's a little more complicated. It's a lot more complicated actually, so. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about that. Um, well, at the time I I did not know how complicated it was. Um, I knew something was really wrong and I knew my mom was trying to put everything back together make it make it seem like it's all right that we're, you know, separated from 
our immediate family and it's all right to feel terrible about it. And I'm the kind of person who just kind of, I, I give my mom the space she needs and I did not stress over the fact that um, I really wanted to know, but mainly because I was afraid of knowing what was going on, I think. And then later on, as we uh, applied for refugee status and, you know, got interviewed a bunch of times, you know, I had to hear it all. She wasn't happy about it, but I had to hear it all. I'm like, oh, oh, you know what? I'm happy I didn't know that when I was 13. Yes. So, yeah. Right. So hearing that your mother had been detained and tortured is like yeah. an overwhelming yeah, thing to it's, know. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And when you say you had to know, is that because you were in the room when your mother was being asked or how did you have to know? Yeah, because we are a part of this. Like they kept replaying everything for us and we had to deal with it. I can imagine uh, if I heard something like that about my mother, someone treating my mother like that, that I would feel so angry. Yeah. Did you did you have a time when you were I really... I felt very angry. And um, I remember it was... Egypt was a mess at the time. And I tried as hard as I can to kind of let my anger out by getting involved in those protests and stuff. I was I really always cared about politics. Yes, I can imagine that you may have felt in such a bind because on the one hand your feelings about the need for justice would be so strong. Yeah. But also your fear about what happens. Your mother yeah. had, of course, been trying to help bring about justice and had suffered so much for it. Yeah. But I think I, I get that from her. I'm, I'm huge on humanitarian work and stuff like that. It's, it's, so I this, think it runs in our veins. So my memory of what was going on in Egypt during those years, 2010 to 2015, is pretty weak. I know, like, the Muslim Brotherhood took yeah. power and then didn't, and... But honestly, I, I, I'm not remembering well. Can you tell me, like, what exactly were you protesting? Uh, well, um, do you know about the Khalid Said thing? I don't. Well, uh, um, Khalid Said was a 26-year-old who got beaten to death by uh, police officers. This is kind of what sparked up the revolution. Um, and then there was uh, a woman in Tahrir who got raped by six men. In public, Tahrir Square is very public. Nobody did anything about that, so we were protesting about that. A lot of people were getting arrested for nothing and getting framed, so we protested a lot about that. I just, whatever's wrong, I want to say something about. So, so it's not like you leave war-torn Sudan and arrive in this place where it's peaceful. You arrive in this place that is it was totally up in arms with all manner of struggles and injustice that you joined in the fray yeah was your mother scared for you like did she try to stop you so most of the protests that i considered big i did not tell my mom about because my mom she's very overprotective <laughs> she's very very overprotective and um especially in egypt she just she just wanted us there like school and school to the house school to the house so i would use dishonesty <laughs> a tried and true practice among teenagers everywhere <laughs> because i had a passion for this and i couldn't i couldn't restrain it i couldn't not do anything so your passion for justice which you got partly from your mom but was also really fed by your experiences what you witnessed mm -hmm. in egypt um already was you were taking certain risks what was it like for you 
to live, I mean, you're living with all this kind of political uncertainty, but to live with so much personal uncertainty. So I understand from your mother that you applied as refugees through the UN, where they appoint you to the country that you're going to be living in and, and that you, for a brief period, thought you were going to be going to Finland. Mm-hmm. How was that for you to, to be so at, sort of on the mercy of, of other people's decisions? Um, feeling helpless is, is unbelievably hard. And when we first, uh, when we were first told that we we're going to go to Finland, I was actually saddened by that because I just really wanted to go to a country that spoke English. So I wouldn't have to feel the newness that I, I didn't want to be alienated and otherized. But of course, my mom was really happy and I, I couldn't not be happy about feeling safe. I couldn't say like, oh my God, I really wanted to go somewhere else. I couldn't because the positives were a lot more than the negatives at that point. So I was happy for my mom. Sounds like you were trying to have a good attitude. Yeah. And you said you didn't want to be otherized. What do you mean by otherized? Um, just, I, I didn't want to be different. I didn't want to, I, it was only this year when I came to America that I actually accepted those differences and realized that being different it's fine. You know, it's, it's, it's totally fine. In America, when I first came, um, I was otherized <laughs> and I was like, everybody anywhere would comment on my accent and comment on the way I do my hair. I have really big curly hair and it's, it was, it was very, I just wanted to feel like I belong the first couple of months. And then I realized that I don't have to belong. I don't have to fit in. So I, I don't fit in currently and I'm fine with it and I'm enjoying being, I'm enjoying my differences and I'm enjoying doing me. Hmm. Do you remember when you found out that you had been approved and that you were going to be coming here to the United States? I do. I do remember. It was a very emotional day. Um, just looking at my mom and I know this, everything I say is related to my mom. She's, she was our anchor. She's, she, she's wonderful. Um. Hmm. It's okay. You take your time. Uh, I think we were making food. <laughs> and uh, we got a phone call, and my mom does the squeak thing when she's happy. So we knew that she's really happy because she hadn't done it in, like, a while. And there was more waiting to do because we did not know when we were going to travel. But the fact that we are going to travel, somebody is willing to take us in is, it just, it felt like a new beginning, you know, it felt right. I'm so touched listening to you. It's like your love for your mom and how much she, how much her happiness is so connected to yours. is so clear to me. So, you find out you're getting resettled to the U.S., but also specifically to Maine. And you start researching it. What did you f- start learning about Maine from the Internet in Egypt? Um, that is cold. Um, that was actually a problem at first because my mom is asthmatic. And I, I thought that was like, I just, everything, everything is about my mom to me. So I'm like, you know, we can't, we can't go to Maine if you're not gonna be okay but she she thought it was fine you know we can give it a shot if she doesn't feel fine then we can go to another state um but we 
we looked up, we found out that it's fairly small. So we knew that it would be a change because we lived in Cairo. So that's a really big city. It's like has 14 million people. Maine has 1 million, I think, or two. So we knew that would that would be different. Um, I looked at USM and uh, UMO. Right. So at that point, your vision was you'd get here and you'd start college. And, yeah. um, and then I understand instead what happened is that you arrived... In March, you know, in the spring semester, mm-hmm. and that you were placed in a high school in 11th grade. How did that decision get made? Um, it got made because they didn't think I could go to senior year with three months left and study everything that they took and be able to pass. So they just put me back in 11th grade. At first, I thought that was really, like, I was really mentally ready for college. But then I thought, you know, this is so minor. Like, this is so trivial. Some people don't get to go to college. Some people don't get to go to school because they're suffering because of some reason. This is so minor, I'm not going to let it get to me. So it did it. So by then, you know, you arrive in this class that, that's very socially formed. You know, people have friendships. Yeah. They're sort of nearing the end of high school. You come from these very intense experiences of applying to be a refugee, f- fleeing your home country. How did you tell your new friends about who you were? Did you tell them this? Did you wait a long time to tell people? I didn't tell people. I, um, like I said, the major thing that I tried to avoid was being otherized. Um, refugees and immigrants are, their labels um, identify them, and I don't like that. I don't like that. They're isolated. They're, they're, they're always going to be refugees and immigrants, and that's, I don't think that's fair. It's not fair to just n- know someone because of their status in that way. So I didn't tell people. I did not, I still do not feel like I belong, but I got involved and I took, like, I, I'm proud of it. How did you get involved? I ran for class president and I won. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wait a second, we have to talk about that. Okay, wait a second. So you arrive, you know nobody, and you apply to become class Class president. president. How did you win? I, uh, well, I spent, I, I put a lot of effort in making the posters I I had a really good speech and I already I'm already kind of a good leader because of my I was class leader in Egypt which is basically class president and I just thought I can do this and I can do this so I thought I would just run for class president I don't care if they don't know me I I have I have things to do in this school and I will do them and I know how to raise money and I'm going to make it awesome for them. So I'm running for president. And I ran for president. And when you said, I have things I want to do in the school, what was your platform? What were the things you wanted to do in your school? Well, um, for starters, I wanted to um, get the civil rights to be like a bigger thing. Civil rights are kind of looked down upon in the school in a way. Uh, I wanted to kind of expand on that and raise more awareness regarding the whole refugees and immigrants thing. The school is not very diverse. It's it has me and a couple of other kids from different countries, and it's it has like eight hundred people total, so it's not diverse. Very recently, we had Unity and Diversity Day, and that was really nice. I wanted to kind of build upon that, like 
that sort of thing in the school. I knew that they needed money for prom, and I had a plan for that. I wanted to have a color run, and I just had, I was really motivated, and I wanted to. Wanted to do I mean, I'm struck just by the tone in your voice when you said, like, I have things I want to do in this school, and I know how to fundraise, and you just came across so confident. Yeah. And I'm, I'm struck at the way you describe yourself five years ago when you first arrived in Egypt feeling so lost and sad. How did you go from being that, that girl who was so lost to five years later being this confident high school girl saying, boom, I know how to do this, I'm going for it? How did that happen? Well, it's definitely, definitely, it has a lot to do with my mom. I, um, this lady, she is, she's just, I'm, I'm very inspired by her. And I think if she can handle what happened to her, then I can handle anything. And, you know, when, when you're given a chance, you don't want to just let it slip away. Like I was given a chance to be in America and not many people get that chance. I was given a chance to go to a good high school. I'm living a good life. I can't not take my chances. I can't not take risks. I can't not, I can't not put myself out there. Because those things don't just happen to you. Or they don't just happen to me. So You don't take them for granted. I don't. I don't take them for granted. So you get, a, you get voted in as president of your class, having been in the school for three months. Did it help you feel less other? Did it help you feel like, wow, I'm wanted here? Definitely. It really, really did. Um, I felt like I'm welcomed. I don't know. It felt like, wow, guys, thank you. Like, it felt very warm in the heart. Like, it felt great. Hmm. Part of what touches me so much about your story is that when I hear the political rhetoric now in our country about immigrants, about first it was Mexicans, now it's about refugees from Syria or from wherever, there's something that just sinks in my heart about who we're becoming as a country that people who can even say that are popular at all. And when I hear you and I hear about how you were received and celebrated at your school, it also, as a white American, gives me so much hope about our country and who we are and the capacity for welcome that is here in this country. We need to hear these stories more. Yeah. America's great. (laughs) So I know that you are Muslim, and also sitting with you, I see your beautiful long hair not covered by a scarf. Tell me about your decision not to wear hijab. Um, Well, I think that uh, Islam is a very easy religion, unlike what many people think. The main reason, I believe, for wearing a scarf is to be protected. In America, I don't think that wearing a scarf would protect me. I don't feel like I need the protection by wearing a scarf. And a lot of people think that Islam is directly connected to just wearing a scarf, but it's not. Islam is not a scarf. Islam is not a abaya or a naqab. It's not the facial veil. It's it's not that. Islam is being peaceful. Islam is knowing that you can't judge anybody. Islam is being kind and generous. Islam is so many good qualities, yet we still look at those terrible examples of Muslims and label the entire Muslim community 
I think hijab here right now is not of necessity. I think that I should be working on myself internally before I wear hijab. It's more internal than external, and a lot of people fail yeah. to realize this. I think that many Americans have a stereotype of Islam as a religion that is much stricter than the West, and that they imagine that sort of the Western influence of, you know, wearing fewer clothes or teenage sexuality or drinking or these things are a real conflict for practicing Muslims. And as a girl in high school, where you're no doubt surrounded by all of those things, um, is that really different from what you were exposed to in Egypt? And how does your mother teach you about those things from within your faith tradition? Um, in Egypt, uh, it was actually very westernized. Um, you know, Americans uh, in America just exports its values through the internet, through the media and everything. So it was very westernized. I, I'm not culturally shocked. I, I came here knowing what to expect, and I know people have different beliefs. That does not stop me from being who I am and, and from doing what I believe in. As long as nobody steps, like, as long as nobody steps on my toes, I'm, I'm good the way I am. And my mom, um, she already taught me things when I was younger. At this point, she does not have, she does not give herself the, even though she has the right to, but she does not give, give herself the right to tell me what to do. Mm. And what are your own views about, you know, dating, having a boyfriend? What are your own wishes for yourself about that? I, I don't mind having a boyfriend, actually. I, I, I think it's fine. Um, I don't drink. It's not, it's not even religion-related. I just don't think I want to put myself in that spot of not knowing what I'm doing or doing things just because I'm not in my right state of mind. It sounds like you and your mom really don't have a lot of conflict over these sort of generational we differences. Not, no. Yeah. It sounds like your mother is quite wise in trusting you and not, not trying to yeah. get overly involved in controlling you. Yeah. I don't hear that. Yeah. So you mentioned you had this Unity in Diversity Day at your school. Mm -hmm. And I understand you were leading some workshops. Tell mm -hmm. me about what you were teaching about. Um, I was teaching about exploring differences cultural differences and the true meaning of being cultured and kind of correlating that to refugees and resettlement and how refugees feel alienated and isolated when they come to this new culture with you know completely different beliefs and we don't open up to them we don't we don't interact with them we think our job stops when we welcome them to America but we we don't realize that you know, they, they don't feel like they belong. And this is a huge thing. And not many people are as lucky as me. Not many people know English. Not many people can voice those thoughts. So I just thought about what one can do in order to make refugees feel truly, truly welcome. Because they, keeping in mind that they were, you know, they come from more torn areas and they already have their baggage. I think many people are very interested in knowing how to help people feel welcome. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me some of the ways? Um, definitely, definitely through interactions. We tend to stop interacting with people. Like when they come here, it's, we just, we don't actually talk to them. This is something, maybe it's just something we don't, 
realize we just don't talk. They're here. We don't hate on them. We don't do anything. We just don't talk to them. And this is really major. I was living next to a woman in Westbrook. Um, she she lived here for almost four years, and she would get me the letters to translate to her because she didn't know English, despite the fact she had lessons, English lessons, the past four years. Well, we learn language through speaking it, through interacting. Exactly. So interaction is such a huge thing. This Do you is, have ideas for how we can increase the chances for interaction? Like, how can we make this really concrete? We can, uh, well, for one, we really need to stop otherizing refugees and immigrants. We must stop. Um, it's it's funny. There's um, yoga classes for immigrants. Uh, there's um, English classes for immigrants, which is understandable, I guess, because of the level. But there's everything for immigrants. No, like this is not this is not getting them involved in the community. This is not helping them. This is grouping them together and telling them you're not us. I know the intentions are good. It just doesn't help. There are programs uh, like American Friends and um, Senior Companion Program in the Catholic Charities. It's very uh, it's, they're very good programs. Uh, American Friends is basically when you are a family, you meet up with another family you take them to places you basically dedicate two hours of your week to just show them around and interact with them which is really thoughtful and senior companion program is for uh the elderly and it's basically the same thing except they're alone they're not like you know interacting families together it's just one-on-one and it's um it's also very nice. It's also two hours per week. And you teach them about, uh, like, you don't actually teach them. It's not a lesson. It's hanging out, which makes it a lot better. But in the process, you tell them, you know, emergency contacts and all that. And, of course, that helps. You know, you they tell you, for instance, what tomatoes are in Arabic. And you tell them what they are in English and stuff like that. Right. It's, it's, it's nice. If someone wants to sign up to become an American friend to do this, where do they go? Catholic Charities. Uh-huh. Catholic so both Charities. of these programs, American Friends and the yeah. Elder Companion, are through Catholic Charities. Yeah. How wonderful. Yeah. And uh, my sister and I were discussing this, and we thought we would have cultural exchange kind of classes. Uh, we were hoping we would find a better name for classes the, for the classes part. But something that would draw people in. And it's not it's not volunteering. It's not a job. It's just something you sign up for. And this makes a lot of refugees and immigrants were highly ranked back in their country. They, you know, they're doctors, they're surgeons, they're, you know, people with like... Like your mom, a veterinarian. Yeah. And so feeling like somebody's just there to help them or like to teach them something is not necessarily... It doesn't feel nice. So... uh, having a cultural exchange classes it still doesn't exist but i'm hoping it would um where they teach americans about different cultures and americans teach them about american culture would be nice and they'd like hang out go bowling and stuff like you know that kind of thing i think if you sign up for it then it means that you're interested in other cultures and this is why you're doing it you're not just pitiful of those people who are not right you're meeting on a level playing field in a way yeah that sounds like such a great idea. Yeah, I'm hoping this would somehow come to life. <laughs> I think if anyone can do it, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a good bet. 
Iman, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space Radio. It's really been a pleasure to thank meet you. Thank you. I enjoyed myself. And I wish you so well as president of your class. I think you're going to do great things. Thank you. <laughs> is the color is the color it's, run going to happen? I'm. Uh, we're trying to make it happen. Yeah, it's really difficult, but I'm hoping we'll make it happen. A quick reminder to please give us some feedback about this show. We would love to hear from you. If you go to safespaceradio.com and click on our survey button, we'd be grateful if you'd take a moment to answer a few questions about this show or the series as a whole. Also, if you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. You can also find us on the web, as I said before, at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including our earlier series on Somali immigrants in Maine. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.